Amen. And uh, we are almost done with the book of Philippians. So please turn there, Philippians chapter 4. And if all goes according to plan, and it doesn't always, you know that. But if all goes according to plan, um, uh, we will be in verses 10 through 13 today. Uh, be gone. I'll be gone next week. Pastor Ken will be preaching for us. I'll be in Bonham, Texas at the new church plant that actually will be constituted as a, a local church. And so it's a privilege to go there. Saturday is the constituting service. Uh, Sunday, of course, the regular worship service. I'll be preaching there too. So I'd ask your prayers for that. But uh, if all goes according to plan, uh, we will finish um, the book of Philippians uh, next, the week after, when I come back. So that's the plan here. Today's message, as you can see from the outline, is contentment. We preached on anxiety, and now we preach on contentment. And I don't know about you, but uh, when I am in a state of anxiety in a negative way, and it does happen, I don't feel very content. You know, But we can be properly concerned and properly active, and that is part of anxiety too. It's something that's been given to us by God to, to help us, the, 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 flight, the fight or flight syndrome that people talk about, uh, just the fact that sometimes it moves us to positive action. You know, Okay, we can be properly concerned and active without falling into the bad part of anxiety. But, um, you know, we, we can be properly concerned and active and be content at the same time. Contentment doesn't mean don't do anything. Just like being, finding our rest in Christ doesn't mean don't do anything, you know. Uh, we sing a hymn occasionally, I am resting in thee, Lord Jesus. And um, that could be taken wrong. You say, well, I'm going to sit back and do absolutely nothing. And that's not what the hymn means. No, it's mean active for him. Now, contentment is what we talk about today. About 1,600 years ago, uh, St. Augustine, one of the most famous, said one of the most famous sayings of all time in, in the ancient church, he said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O Lord. And that's a truth that we should know as Christians. Why should our hearts be restless once we know Him who is the source of our needs? Yet, I know sometimes they are. You know, sometimes we find ourselves living in depression, or if not as severe as depression, you know, uh, maybe just discouragement, you know, and, or even discontent. And the Apostle Paul shows us the remedy to that kind of bad thinking in verse number 8. Let me just read it to you again by way of review. Verse 8, we did an in-depth word study on this last week. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And then the call to actions in the next verse, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So now we come to verses, well, today we're going to go 10 through 13. You know, as we read 10 through 13, uh, we have two different things happening here. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about contentment, but the week after, we're going to talk about um, partnership in the gospel and missionary giving. And that really is in chapter 10, 
but it also works its way down through uh, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. So we won't deal with that this week, but we will deal with contentment this week. Let me read you verses 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned that in whatever state I am, to be content. And uh, that's where we get this idea of, of contentment from. You know, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. But then he goes on and say, nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Okay, so we'll deal with verses 10 through 13 today. And uh, I want to deal with verse 10 because I think it gives us a start. But one of the chief reasons that, that Christians are discontent is they have unrealistic expectations. And maybe they try to satisfy those expectations. They try to find those things that cannot satisfy and make us always want more. And that's not a new problem. Proverbs 30 talks about this. I won't have you turn there. I'll just paraphrase it for you. But Proverbs 30, I think it starts in verse 15. It says, the leech has two daughters. Now you know what a leech is, right? They're pretty disgusting things. Back in the bad old days, they used to put leeches on you to bleed out your diseases. Uh, Wasn't a good idea. I'm sure there's things we do that aren't a good idea too. But that was a poor idea. The leech has two daughters. And you know what her daughter's names are? Give and give. They got the same name. (laughs) Give and give. And you know what happens? If you give, it isn't good enough. It isn't going to be enough. It's like throwing a cup of water in the ocean. It makes no discernible difference. It's never enough. They're never full. Like the bloodthirsty leech, they want more. And the more they get, the more they want. Give and give. And the proverb doesn't stop there. In poetic style, um, the, the proverb writer says, there are four things that, are never, that never say it's enough. The grave. Why would the grave never say it's enough? Because unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And that's the way it's been. Proverbs written a thousand years ago, and it's been proven true for all that length of time. No matter how long you live, you could, maybe somebody in here would live to be the oldest person on the face of the earth. And if you hit about age 115, you'll be proclaimed probably the oldest person on the face of the earth. Maybe that, that keeps rising. Maybe be 120 by, by a certain time. Still going to die. Still going to die. It's never enough. The barren womb never says that it's enough. And, and being a man, I probably don't understand it um, as much as a lady would. But it can be a great heartache for a lady that wants to have a baby. And not all, not all ladies do. And this is up to the Lord too. But to a lady that wants to have a baby, you know, what a heartache it is not to have one. Just think of Hannah in the Bible, who cried out to her husband, give me children lest I die, you know. And uh, 
Her husband comforted her. I'm better to you than, than three sons. Give me children lest I die. You know. And then two particular problems are mentioned. And these are California problems, so we can relate to this. Um, the earth is never satisfied with water. We never get water. <laughs> okay. But in all seriousness, there is something that, you know, look at Kentucky. Our, our brothers in Kentucky right now are suffering tremendously. They're getting deluged, and I hear they're going to get deluged again today. And people are dying over there. We need to pray for them. We need to ask God to have mercy on them. You know? Two things. Thing, it never is enough. It's never enough, no matter how much it rains. And the fire. The fire never says it's enough. It just keeps consuming and consuming and consuming until usually God stops it. You know, we try to, we fight those fires really hard and we thank the Lord for those brave firefighters that go out there and stop those fires. But you know what really stops it? When God finally sends the rain. All of a sudden, there it goes, you know. So anyway, uh, we, can, we need to make sure we don't chase those things that do not satisfy We'll never be content if, those, if we're chasing the wrong kind of thing. But Paul in this passage shows us that he lives a contented life. Verse 11 is absolutely tied to verse 13. I'll show that in just a bit here. And verse 13 uh, explains the all thing, or actually verse 11 and 12 tell us the all things that Paul is satisfied with and can do through Christ. Okay, first of all though, the gratefulness for the gift given. You know, it's a, it's a weird outline. I never did figure out how I was going to outline this passage. So I did it the easy way. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13. There you go. So that's not too confusing, is it? Okay. For verse number 10. Paul's gratefulness for the gift given. And we'll deal with that more in two weeks. Suffice it to say this, that the Philippians had sent a monetary gift to Paul. Paul was staying in Rome in a rented house, under house arrest. Okay? And let's remember how difficult communication was back in those days. Uh, we can communicate with people around the world in, in a matter of moments, but uh, that was not the case. And uh, communication was difficult. Communication was dangerous. And Paul alludes to this when he talks about uh, their concern but lack of opportunity. He never doubted their love. But did they even know his present distress, his present circumstances? Well, evidently, somehow they did, because there was travel that would go back and forth. And so word got to the Philippians that Paul had a problem, that he was in need, and they sacrificially gave to that need so that Paul would be cared for. And um, it was even dangerous getting it to him. Look, remember, go back to Philippians 2. Go back to Philippians 2, verse 25. And this is just a little glimpse of, of the life for the Apostle Paul and his friends. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. So Epaphroditus came from the Philippian congregation, brought with him an offering to help the Apostle Paul would have helped with the rent that was necessary to pay for the, the you know, better prison than he had in a cell. He had it under house arrest. Would have paid for that. 
would have paid for food, would have paid for many of the necessities that he has. And the one who ministered to my need, since, it, since he was longing for you all, talk to the Philippians, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And you know, it was dangerous to travel in those days. It was. Uh, you could run into robbers, you could run into storms, you could run into shipwrecks, you could run into all kinds of problems, whether it be by land or by sea. But one thing you don't always think about is illnesses. You go to a new place and you can pick up illnesses that are there. And that had happened to Epaphrodites. Very sick, almost died, but he didn't. The Lord is gracious. So, therefore I send him basically back to you more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And simply saying, you couldn't be here, but he represented you and he brought what you gave for him to give to me. You know, so there you go. Now, in verse 10, there's a couple words I'd like us to look at here. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Or your translation may say, say has revived again. And, and both capture the idea of the Greek word there. If you want an illustration of that Greek word, just think uh, it doesn't happen so much here in Southern California. But uh, when you go to other places, I come from Michigan, certainly happens in Michigan you go to Michigan, like in February, and uh, the trees, you, say, you could say, all the trees died. What happened to the trees, man? They're nothing but sticks. They're nothing but twigs, you know? Um, they died. They didn't die. They revived in the spring. And here they come into their full bloom. And uh, leaves everywhere. It's a forest once again. That's what the word flourished or revived means in this context. And then Paul uses the word concern. I wanted to bring that up to you. Your concern or your care for me. Okay. And uh, generally speaking, we would not consider concern to be compatible with being content. But it can be. And this is a common word. And usually we translate it by uh, context. I'm going to run you through a whole bunch of verses here. And you can follow with me if you'd like. It's on your outline. And I'm just going to read them pretty much without comment because we already commented on them, where this word care or concern comes in. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. Just as it's right for me to think this of you all. The word think there is the same Greek word. Because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And then chapter 2, verse 2. It's in here twice. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There it is. Like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. There it is again. Okay, So you can see it can be translated by many different words. Helps us get the idea of what Paul is saying. 2.5. Let this mind, there it is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay. And then 3.15, here it is twice again. It's ten times in the book. 
Therefore, let as many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even that to you. Mind and think. It's not hard to see a connection here, is it? See what the idea is. 319. Christ, or sorry, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Not a positive that time. 4.2. I implore Yodia and Sintinchi to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then, of course, 4.10. Twice. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice, sorry, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care, there it is, for me has flourished again, though you certainly did care, but you lacked opportunity. He was always in their thoughts. That's the idea. He was always their concern in a good way. When you care about someone, you pray for them. But let me give you another hint that might help you in the area of contentment that we're going to talk about now. When you don't care for someone, and when you really just don't like them very much, you should pray for them. And that will help you to care. That will give you a good concern. No, that's not in the text, but that's a, that's a freebie. Okay. So, there you go. Anyway, it's a common word. We saw it ten times just in the book of Philippians. Paul knew they cared for him. But sometimes we need to be told, or sometimes we need to be shown. So what did they do? They took a sacrificial offering and sent it to him. And Paul says, you're co-laborers with me in the gospel. You know, the whole book of Philippians is in this context. This is the context and the setting for the book, is the fact that they had shown that kindness to him. And the next time we preach, we will actually uh, flesh that out of how we can be examples like that too and do the same thing. So let's go to verse 11. Now let's talk about contentment. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now this is an interesting word. You know, uh, The Stoics use this word a lot. And um, it carried the idea of Satisfied self-sufficiency, independence, and even autonomy. That's what they meant. That isn't what Paul meant at all. He's content through Christ or in Christ and, um, or in him or through him. Manuscript uh, differences don't make a difference. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or maybe your Bible says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It makes no difference. It obviously means the same thing. Okay. Now, Greek prepositions are like English prepositions. This is a little word N. It's epsilon nu. Little word. Tiny little word. And, uh, of course, I knew prepositions. I, I, I know that they have a variety of meaning, and I find it very interesting that through was used almost all of the time. I can do all things through Christ. And uh, it's the little word N. 
And as every good first-year beginning Greek student knows, en, epsilon nu, means in. Okay, it means more than in, though. Prepositions take on a wide, wide variety. So I thought, I'm going to go to my Greek dictionary. It's 900 pages thick, you know. It's 8 by 10, so big pages. It's a big book. And it's tiny little print. <laughs> so I got out my magnifying glass, and I looked up the word N, epsilon nu. And sure enough, there was a whole page. Then there was another whole page. And then there was another whole page. Three pages of definitions. Well, that was a little bit more than I expected. I knew there was a lot, but that was a little bit more than I expected in the, in the uh, BDAG a dictionary. Well, you know, it was a good reading. With a magnifying glass, it was good reading. And, um, you know, then I said, I'm going to pick up uh, my more extensive English dictionary and just look up that little word in and see what it says, I-N. Okay. It wasn't three pages, but it was a good half a page of definition, just in English. And you could probably get the big, the big dictionary like that, and it would be even longer. Okay. Prepositions function that way. They give us an idea. We should always be thinking directionally or be thinking relationally or some other way like that with prepositions. And uh, so we could say, I can do all things in Christ, or I can do all things through Christ. And we really have a good idea of exactly what Paul is saying, you know. So... We could get the wrong idea here if we don't understand what Paul's saying. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know. And Paul is not saying it, well, like I say, it, let, me, let me say this. God doesn't promise to make us superheroes. This is sometimes what we get from this passage, you know. And we talked about it at that men's breakfast yesterday, too. And uh, as we talked about it, you know, we, we talked about the fact that uh, this verse gets misused many times. You know, I did something really, really great. And really, I want to take credit for it, you know, because I did something really great. Maybe I scored a touchdown, hit a home run, did something like that. And really, I want to give the credit to it, but I want to be humble. So I, I say, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, well, what about that pitcher? Christian pitcher that threw the, the ball that you hit out for a home run. What about him? You know, is he hanging his head saying, I guess I can't do all things through Christ? You know? That's not what it means. That's not what it is about at all. God didn't promise to make us superheroes of the faith, uh, you know, um, or, you know, faster than a speeding bullet or able to leap tall buildings a single bound and everything. That, that's not it at all. Phillips paraphrases this verse 13. The Phillips paraphrase can be good sometimes. I'm ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives in me. They really, hit, they really hit the meaning. That's not good Greek, but it's the meaning behind it as a paraphrase. Now, verse 12. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Does he know how to live in the most meager of resources? Yes, he does. Does he know how to live when times are good? Yes, he does. You know, prosperity can kill your soul. It really can. 
Or if it doesn't kill your soul, prosperity can be like a, a spiritual sleeping pill that puts you at ease. And now there's no problems. And now everything's okay. And now I can just relax. The Laodicean syndrome. The Laodicean syndrome. You're rich. You've become wealthy. You have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. Oh, my That's quite an indictment against the Laodicean church who were self-satisfied more in the stoic sense than in the Christian sense. Self-satisfied. Now there's a progression Paul purposely does here that we find in verse 11 and verse 12 when we put them together. I have learned. That's how he starts. I have learned. Very common word. I have learned. It means exactly what you think it means. I have learned. And then I know. I know how to, you know. I know, again. And then he says, I have learned. Which is a different word. We have a bookend. Bookends of I have learned. And I know in the middle. But there's a different word. And the meaning is important that it's a different word. Because the word translated, I have learned, in verse 12, appears only here in the New Testament. The other word, in verse 11, very common, all the time. But here, it's in verse 12, it's only here. And the ESV makes note of that um, by saying this, I have learned the secret. Okay, it's all one word. I have learned the secret. It's all one Greek word, and it gets translated that way. And as best I can tell from a little bit of research, the ASV of 1901, which is often called uh, the Rock of Biblical Integrity, and I'm I'm glad to have a copy of that, and I I refer to it. I I used to refer to it. I don't anymore because I can find it on the Internet. you know. But uh, I, I like that little 1901 ASV, you know, they appear to be, as best I could tell, the first ones to translate it that way. And almost all modern translations have ever since. I have learned the secret. Which is a good way to put it, by the way. Because it does come from that kind of idea. Believe it or not, it, it comes from uh, the, mis- the mystery religions. Now, Christianity is not a mystery religion. But there were a lot of mystery religions. And there still are a lot of mystery religions today. Uh, the Mormons have their initiation rites that they won't tell you what they are until you uh, become a good Mormon. Uh, the Masons will do the same thing. This is not unusual. Um, this was very true back in the Greek days. The, the initiation rites that you were never supposed to tell anybody about. Of course, they always get out. Somebody always squeals, you know, eventually. But you're not supposed to tell. Paul uses that word. To get the Philippians' attention, and it would have. Because in their culture, that would have really meant something. It's like saying, I've been initiated. In the school of Christ, I've learned. But you know what? I've learned the secret. And it's not going to be a secret, because I'm going to tell you what it is. So all of a sudden, it's not a secret anymore. It's not a secret. You know what? If you know a secret, and you tell one person, it's not a secret anymore. 
<laughs> That's just the way it is. I mean, it's very rare that, that you can tell somebody a secret and uh, then nobody ever finds out, you know. Right? That's pretty rare, you know. But Paul says, I'm going to tell you a secret, and, and here it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can abound. I can suffer need. I can have really prosperity and good times. And I do it through Christ. Young's literal translation, because of the Bible program I use, I can find about you know, 30 different translations easily, you know. And Young's literal translation hit it like this. It's not going to be great English, but it's pretty good as far as being literal. I have known both to be abased and I have known to abound in everything and in all things. I have been initiated both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. And so that's the idea here. That would have really got their attention in a way that we really, it really doesn't get our attention unless we really dig into it a little bit. And the secret is that he learned in the school of Christ that he's in Christ. And he can take the best and worst circumstances and learn them in the school. We learn from our circumstances in this school. Why? Because he's the God of our circumstances. That's why. And so we can trust him. Verses 11, 12, and 13 need to be kept together because they go together. And verse 10 will go very, very well with verses 14 through 23. But let me apply this a little bit. Christian friend, talking to Christians now, If you or I can only be content when things are going well, you haven't done anything better than the Gentiles. Because some of them, not all of them, but some of them have learned to be content in themselves, self-satisfied. And when things are going well, it's a little bit easier. So if you can only be content when things are going well, you know better than the Gentiles, you know. But if a Christian, as a Christian, if you cannot be content in the hard times, I can't tell you this will happen. But since God has a school of contentment, and I believe that he does, as a Christian, if you cannot be content in the hard times, it may well be that God will have you repeat a great. And continue to be in that state of hard times until we learn to be content in Him alone. And why? Because God hates idols. He hates idols, despises idols. Somebody actually read that this morning at the 10 o'clock service. Uh, of the, I think it was you, Brother Caleb, that, that hates idols. God hates idols, and He does. Verse 12 helps us to understand something that sounds very lofty. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And he could say, well, Paul just has learned to block out his troubles. He denies his troubles. He pretends like they don't exist. He has positive thinking, you know. Positive thinking wins the day, and that's how Paul does that. 
Look at verse 14. Paul's a realist. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Paul didn't say, you've done well that you shared in my happiness, in my rented prison waiting to be executed by Caesar. No, it's his distress. He knows that this is a real problem. We do not solve our situations by denying our problems. We solve our situations by learning to be content in Christ in the midst of our circumstances, be they good or bad. The Lord strengthened Paul through every circumstance. 2 Timothy 4.17. Think it up. Yeah, it's on your outline. 2 Timothy 4.17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. He doesn't deny difficult times. He knows it's true. But he doesn't live in the circumstances. He looks to Christ. The all things Paul mentions in verses 10 through 12, using himself as an example, Paul's talking about the ups and downs of life that we all experience. So verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. Often badly misunderstood in our day, at times even interpreted in a way that's exactly opposite what Paul meant, discontented with their circumstances, wanting more. The verse is claimed as a promise to bigger and greater things through Christ. I can do anything. The sky's the limit. There are no boundaries. What can I accomplish? He can make me great. He can make me prosper. Can he make you hungry? It's not not easy to be content when you're hungry. No, it's not. Absolutely not. But can you? Can he make you be in need? Paul says he found himself in need. Can you be content in need? That's the context. And if we really understand the context, as I've tried to show, we'll see what we really should learn from this verse. We are never under the circumstances because we serve the God who's the God of our circumstances so we can trust him and rest in him in every circumstance. My friend, you know, I'll use myself. I've lived 67 years. Had really good times. Had some really tough times. He's the God that watches over our circumstances. You know. Now, I'll just kind of conclude with this. You know. As I was studying... And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I had a little bit of trouble with this sermon. I tried to put it all together, and it wasn't coming together. That's why your outline's kind of funky like that. You know, it just did. It's okay. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. But usually we have some points and subpoints and all kinds of things like that. And, and uh, as I was trying to put it together, I, I thought, you know what? I've got a book on my shelf that I haven't opened up in a long time. And I've got a feeling Philippians 4.13's in there. I was only guessing. But I pulled off D.A. Carson's exegetical fallacies. I said, I'm going to read if that's in there. Look, went to the back of the book, looked in the index, Philippians 4.13, page 117. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what D.A. Carson says. 
And here it is. I put it on your outline, you know. The everything, he uses the NIV. The everything or all things, as most translations, cannot be completely unqualified. That is, jump over the moon. This is D.A. Carson. I didn't make this up. Okay, Jump over the moon, integrate complex mathematical equations in my head, turn sand into gold. So it is commonly expounded as a text that promises Christ's strength to believers in all that they have to do. The everything in this text is contented living in the midst of food or hunger, plenty or want. And that's what the everything, that's what the all things means in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contented living in the midst of food or hunger, plenty or want. You know why? Because he is enough. He is enough. You know, if you're going after money, it'll never be enough. If you're going after fame, well, expect to come crashing down. If you do meet, meet fame, and you can read about it every single day on the internet, uh, somebody famous that either figuratively or literally came crashing down. You know, famous fleeting. If you're after beauty, fleeting. Whatever you're after, fleeting, unless it's Christ. Unless it's Christ. You know, D.A. Carson calls that kind of a, a mistake here. Uh, he, he's got a fancy name for it. He calls it unwarranted associative jumps. Okay, what, what D.A. Carson's telling us, for those that don't speak scholarly, <laughs> he's telling us, you know, you read a verse, and then you think, Oh, it means that. Man, I'm going to go for that, you know. Hang it on my wall and look at it every day and, and uh, just be ready to score a touchdown or hit a home run or, or get a promotion at work or, or whatever. You know. Misapplied, unwarranted associative jumps. Paul isn't telling us to reach for the stars so we can be greater than we ever imagined. Paul is telling us that he is already content and he's learned the power of a contented life that he can be content regardless of his circumstances because he is in Christ. And he does that through Christ. So remember how we started today. We started by St. Augustine. I'll say it the other way for those that prefer that. Okay. St. Augustine saying, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. And I hope you can say that. I hope you can understand that. But I think some of you probably can't. Because if you're here today without Christ, and you don't know him as your Savior, I would pray that God would not let you be content until you bow before him as your Lord and Savior. Because I'll tell you this, if you can be content without Christ... You're sleeping the sleep of death. Satan would love you to sleep the sleep of death and wake up in hell itself. You know? Satan, you know, Satan is, is crafty. He's crafty. Some people, Satan loves to torment in this life. Maybe that's you, or maybe you've seen that happen to others. 
Satan just torments them. Their lives are miserable. Their lives are terrible. They have nothing in this world and everything goes wrong for them. Be it health or money or anything. Family, anything. It all just seems to go wrong. And then they die without Christ and end up in hell. Miserable in this life and miserable in the next. And Satan loves that. But you know, many people probably most Americans. Satan is more than happy to pretty much leave you alone to your own depravity. Leave you with a false sense of comfort that comes from complacency. That's a dangerous place to be. So I ask you, do you know the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you content and trusting in him? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And you have used your word by your spirit to open the eyes of so many that are in this place today. But Lord, there may be some that really could not say with any kind of confidence at all that they are in Christ And that they're trusting in you. And their future, even though they need to make plans for their future, yes, we all do. And their future is really uncertain because who knows what could happen next to anybody and anything and even our own nation. Nobody knows. There are no guarantees like that. But there is one guarantee that will never go away. If we're in Christ, we can learn to be content because we have him and he is all that we need. That's saying a lot. And it's admittedly very difficult. But when we think about it, Lord, that it's more difficult to live the other way. So help us to find our contentment not in other people, not in other things. Not in money, not in jobs. All these things are fleeting. Help us to find our real contentment in you. And then because you're such a good God, because you're such a gracious God, you'll be with us even if it is with plenty, even if it is with fullness of food. You're still our God who then gives good gifts to his children. So we thank you, Lord, whether it be poverty or plenty, that we can look to you, our God, who does not change. But Lord, we're so changeable. Help us to build upon the rock that is more solid than I. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.